0: Why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? Do you really want to know? It might make
1: you uncomfortable and even sound a little crazy. But if I tell you, you can't go back to sleep, here's the truth. You're under attack. We all are. Our children, our families, our communities. The saddest part is, they're only successful because we refuse to pay attention. For centuries, even millennia, they've conspired in the shadows and worked behind the scenes and hidden the truth behind cascading waves
2: of lies and distractions. Can we be victorious? Only oh, yeah. The Fusion Cell. I'll be your warrior
1: guide, retired Green Beret Master Sergeant Jeremy Brown, with former Police Sergeant Jen. Do we have all the answers? Absolutely not. But together, we'll find them. Now, wake up.
3: Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Fusion Cell. And that was, uh, I'm sure you recognize that song, Jeremy. It was Elvis Presley again. with Jailhouse Rock. <laughs> of, now, course, of now, course. Normally, I wouldn't be so upbeat about jailhouse rock, but we're talking about your appeal today. And so it's a little different, you know, there's a tiny bit of excitement here with this appeal, because I think there's some amazing arguments inside of it. And I think that, uh, you might be a little bit excited also. Am I wrong on that?
1: I knew if we just waited 760 days, something good would happen. <laughs>
3: it's bound to at some point
1: yes i I, i'm so excited and giddy that i actually ordered some junk food on promissory and ate it all so i'll probably i might have to take a bathroom break afterwards but uh, (laughs) we won't discuss that on the air okay
3: well that's good i hope you don't get a stomach ache It is October 30th, 2023 in case we uh I didn't state that before but I'd like to give the date so we know exactly where we're at when I go back and watch these videos. Um Jeremy, what were you thinking about what you at what point did you know that you were going to file this appeal? And uh what were you thinking about when discussing with the attorney um how it was all going to play out?
1: Well, I mean, The reality is the minute that I went public uh, with the exposing of the uh, federal government's illegal attempt to recruit me to violate the uh, Fourth and First Amendment rights of the American people, I knew that I'd be filing this appeal because I knew that eventually they would be coming after me and I knew that I would be fighting a corrupt judicial system. Uh, you know, to the very end. And that's exactly why, you know, from the very beginning, I've always told the attorneys that I've worked with, with of which has been eight up to this point. I'm on my eighth uh, attorney, right? Some of them are still around. I've got some good behind-the-scenes helpers. Uh, our appeals attorney has done a fantastic job, and now I have a new trial attorney for D.C. So we've been through eight attorneys up to this point. Uh, which, by the by the way, if you read the early pages of the appeal, uh, eight attorneys is what the DOJ has had all along on just this one case, um, and of course they'll have a different set of attorneys fighting their appeal. But uh, I, I've always told the attorneys that I work with that there's three main missions uh, that I'm focused on. The first mission is to expose the FBI, the Department of Justice, and all other government agencies uh, that were involved in the staging and execution of the January 6th false flag military coup against the American people. Now, of course, back then, I wasn't using language like a military coup, but a lot of information has come out that is 100% confirmed in my mind uh, that that's exactly what it was based on various testimonies and documents and things like that it is without a doubt a operation that was highly uh organized and and controlled by elements of the department of defense department of justice as well as intelligence agencies so that was the first mission the second mission was to expose the flaws in the judicial system itself because Remember, I wasn't arrested until nine months after the fact. So I already had uh, trial transcripts. I already had uh, you know the stories of the other illegally held January six defendants. You know, months worth of information coming out of those. That that that's what I for the first six months of both of my cases, I maintained uh, in essence a, a public defender, what they call CAA counsel. In both cases, and what was accomplished in the two in the two separate cases in six months? Nothing. Nothing was accomplished. In fact, to this day, the DOJ is still refusing to provide me with discovery in my DC case, which is only two misdemeanor counts. Okay, and so I wanted to expose these issues. And of course, never having been in the criminal justice system as an American citizen. Uh, a lot more issues were revealed to me directly and personally, and then only the third tier of that mission, and the least important of all these tiers, was my own freedom. And so, uh, before we get into the actual appeal, I, w- I want to kind of take everybody back to the execution of these missions, and and I want to to show you that in order, what had to have been done to get to where we are right now. Okay. And I want everyone to hear me and, and take me seriously because I am still, sell, sell, I'm selling myself to you because we are not even close to the end of this battle. And you know, I own the limousine company, right? And at Blue Moon Transportation, I, I built Blue Moon Transportation to be the premier luxury transportation company in the Tampa Bay area. In fact, I told my chauffeurs in training, of which was extensive, I told them, you are to be the special forces of the limousine industry. All right. Mm -hmm. And so at Blue Moon Transportation, we had not a 100% money back guarantee, but we had a 200% money back guarantee. Meaning if we screwed up, You didn't only get the trip that we screwed up for free, but you got the next trip for free as well. And the reason is because I believe that, like Dave Ramsey teaches, if you work, you get paid. And if you don't work, you don't get paid, right? A meritocracy. If you're awesome, you should be paid accordingly. And if you suck, you shouldn't get paid at all. Okay. And so, what I want to go over tonight is to show you what I have put myself up for, uh, what I have committed to doing on behalf of the American people, on behalf of the Constitution for which I am sworn to uphold, and yeah, on behalf of yeah our founding fathers. <laughs> yeah, you know, they fought and bled for this country first, yes. right? They toiled over uh, parchment by candlelight, Uh, They wrote to newspapers. They fought with each other, right, so that they could structure this government to operate in a certain way in order to protect or, as their their wording in the Constitution is, to secure the blessings of liberty for ourselves and our posterity, our children, our future generations of Americans. And so this is what I'm fighting for. And it truly is a fight. And what I want to remind you of is what that fight has entailed to get to this point. And this, I will declare as our initial victory in this almost three-year-long fight. Remember, I recorded these agents on December 9th of 2020. January 6th, the three-year anniversary is coming up. The three-year anniversary of that recruitment is coming up. This has been a, an extremely long process. But even before then, we watched our country be attacked by this false Russia, Russia, Russia hoax narrative. A, a total destruction that crippled the ability for this country to move forward. This country has been under attack for half a century or maybe even a century, if you want to go all the way back to the Federal Reserve Act and some of the uh, illegal constitutional amendments that uh, that were were forced on us, right? And so this has been a long, drawn-out battle, and it has not been a battle for my freedom, but it has been a battle to correct some of the ills that this judicial system has allowed to happen over time through the making of their rules and all this stuff and some of the actions that are being used on a daily basis by federal and even local law enforcement agencies out there because the system is structured in a way that is too difficult for us to correct it it's just easier for us to just plead guilty walk away and the problem is never fixed well I, did not want that to happen and so i want to basically just summarize that this appeals based on the trial of which i waited 439 days in maximum security at the pinella county jail and so i want to remind you of just how much the government wanted to avoid this moment by reading some of the comments from a letter that was sent to me by my attorney at the time on November 3rd. This is a, just a few days over a month away from my trial date. And this was following a conversation that he just had with the government's prosecutor. So let me just read as a reminder of what I was offered and what I chose to face, face to get to this point. It says, this is to memorialize recent developments in your case firstly our conversation on october 24th at that time i informed you about a conversation i had with assistant united states attorney daniel Marset, in which he informed me he will be open to passing any plea offers to his boss now remember the department of justice has publicly stated on the record All you. We've made no plea offers, right? You're right. Okay. Technically, you might be right. But you heard what the, my attorney just told me. He informed me that he would be open to passing any plea offers to his boss. He continued. He specifically stated, if you would like to plead to the possession of the short barrel firearm count, he would ask his supervisor to dismiss the other count. Huh. What were the other counts? Well, the other counts, the accounts derived from their illegal search warrant that found the illegally planted, I mean, uh, possessed grenades, right? The CD ROM with classified materials on it, you know, 17 years old and yet looked like it was brand new. Uh, and if you know anything about classification stickers, all right, the, the sticker on the CD ROM, they're actually designed to degrade and, 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 be messed up very easily, right? They're tamper-proof stickers. They're designed that any amount of wear and tear is going to make them look older because if you try to scrape them off, they're meant to to basically disintegrate. And yet this sticker that was supposedly 17 years old looked perfectly fine, right? That's the evidence that Mr. Daniel Marset was willing to ask his supervisor to just dismiss those things. You know the things that the espionage act, right? That they're trying to throw President Trump in prison you know, for as well. These are the things that they were willing to just get rid of if I would just plead, right? And it says, uh, "Let's see, real quick before we have to call back."
2: Uh,
1: I believe there is a good chance that you would be released from custody custody shortly after resolving your Middle District case. So, in essence, after sixteen months of maximum security. They were basically saying, hey, just plead to these two firearms charges, you know, waive your right to appeal, and we'll just let you walk out Free. You don't have to tell the American people about the fact that we planted evidence against you. No, there you go. There's the door. Just take it. Take it. But I refuse. And when we come back, I'll read to you how upset my attorney was that I refused. And then we'll get into why I
2: refused. Sounds good. The caller has hung
3: up. Something to pay attention to, and I know we talked about this a couple times, but these are the games that prosecutors play. And so they'll ask, oh, you just want to plead to these two, and then we can throw hold these other charges in front of you. Like, a, you don't want this one, right? Because we could put it on the table. And something that we're seeing with Trump, and, uh, what's going on in Georgia, Sydney Powell, uh, and the others, Jenna Ellis, right. Is that they front loaded all these charges. They heavily charged them. And now you see them pleading to things that they weren't even charged with lesser crimes. And so you have to ask yourself, you know, these lawyers could get disbarred. It could be a very long process. The process is the punishment like Steve friend, the FBI whistleblower has told us bankrupting defendants to have long trials, unknown caller. They know that a lot of people can't take that financial burden.
2: An incarcerated individual at Citrus County, Florida. This call is not private. It will be recorded and may be monitored. If you believe this should be a private call, Please hang up and follow facility instructions to register this number as a private number to accept this free call. Press 1 to refuse this free call. Thank you for using Securus. You may start the conversation now. All right, can you hear me? Yes. So
1: let me just read a couple more comments from my attorney so that you can understand after 16 months in maximum security jail, denied bonds, on no charges at all, but simply because a judge felt like I was a threat to law enforcement. That this is the type of pressure that was put on me by my own attorney to just take the plea. Just walk out. It is 100% my advice to enter a plea to the possession of firearms charges if the government was willing to dismiss the remaining counts. He goes on later, he says, I believe you will lose on appeal or constitutional arguments." He goes on, getting a jury to believe evidence is planted is never easy. And then he concludes, I do not agree with your decision because in the long run, I believe it will lead to you spending far more time in prison and the uncertainty of a jury trial and the uncertainty of sentencing following the jury trial. This was from my own attorney, who wanted me to just plead guilty yeah. to gun charges that shouldn't be charges at all, so that the government didn't have to meet its burden to prove that the evidence that they had was mine. What they really didn't want you to see, or what they really didn't want you to hear, is what you'll read in this appeal brief. Yes. And so all of that has led to this moment. And what is this moment? This moment is where I get to tell the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals through my appeals attorney that the federal government violated my Fourth Amendment rights. They violated my Second Amendment rights. By my Fifth Amendment right and my Fourteenth Amendment right, and that's exactly what this appeal, this appeal is going to lay out. Now, for those of you who have never had to face the federal appeal system, there is a thirteen thousand word limit, so we couldn't make all the arguments to each of these, and we couldn't make all of the arguments of all the other things that the government has violated and that the judiciary has violated and that the prosecutors violated and that the FBI violated. we are only allowed 13,000 words. My appeals attorney took 12,992 words to make the best argument on these grounds. That's almost $6 a word In case you're wondering how much this packet of pages, 50 pages, I think this is, right? And so 53 pages, 53 pages at $6 a word, roughly. Uh, And what you'll read is an amazing argument. Now, I want to say thank you to Michael Upperman uh, of Tallahassee. He is the appeal attorney. And I also like to say thank you to Chris Hedges and Carol Stewart, who had a part in this argument as well, because they have helped all along the way and provided uh, legal advice. In fact, one of these arguments was actually formulated uh, by uh, Chris at the very end, and I think it was, obviously, it was uh, uh, good enough for Michael to include it into the appeal. So, uh, yeah, Jen, I think uh, you wanted to touch on some points, uh, your assessment of the appeal, and then Uh, We can talk about each of the areas if you'd like.
3: Okay, awesome. Um, Yeah, so I just want everybody to get a really good understanding of what is in this appeal. So let me just read to you the statement regarding the oral argument. This case presents three important constitutional questions. First, the appellant, Jeremy Brown, Karen after. Appellant Brown submits that the warrant in this case violates the particularity requirement of the 4th Amendment because it failed to identify any of the items to be seized. Second, Appellant Brown asserts that 26 USC 5861D, which punishes as a felony possession of an unregistered shotgun/rifle having a short barrel, is a facially unconstitutional restriction on a person's Second Amendment right to bear arms. And third, Appellant Brown contends that the holding in Doyle v. Ohio 426, U.S. 610, that was a case in 1976, where the Supreme Court held that the prosecution's use of post-arrest silence violates the Constitution, prohibited the government from commenting on Appellant Brown's silence, during his recorded jail call with his girlfriend. This court should grant oral argument to consider these constitutional questions. So what are the statement of the issues? Let's reiterate. One, the district court erred by denying appellant Brown's motion to suppress. Two, 26 USC 5861D, which punishes as a felony possession of an unregistered shotgun rifle, having a short barrel, is facially unconstitutional, restriction on a person's second amendment right to bear arms in three the government erroneously commented on appellant brown's silence in a recorded conversation so jeremy do you want to break those down one by one or what would you like to say let's go with the first one let's talk about the motion to suppress why wasn't that granted
1: yeah yeah please feel free well yeah, why wasn't that granted? <laughs> that That's exactly what you'll read. You'll read that we made the argument necessary, like the request for a hearing, a motion to suppress, we were requesting for what's called a Frank's hearing, in, in, in essence like an evidentiary hearing, like uh, in order to make the government explain you know, their side, right? And all I have to do is make a substantial finding that we should – have a hearing to decide whether or not our motion uh is legitimate right we weren't even granted this hearing right and now i i will tell you after the fact after the motion was to suppress or submit it without my approval i was not happy with the quality of the motion at the time there were things that i wanted argued in it that were not argued there were uh uh just basic factual misstatements that would have easily been corrected if I would have just been allowed to read it. But nonetheless, it should have, it was good enough definitely to be granted a hearing. And I was told that don't worry. I I got it. I got it. There's, there's some things, but don't worry. Once we get to hear at the hearing, we'll be able to make those arguments. Right. But the judge didn't even grant the hearing. So that's the first thing. Right. And, And really they, how can the judge rule on whether or not the warrant or the search was even legal if you're not even going to grant a motion to to listen to hear what we had to say to to argue our motion? Instead, she just eh, eh, denies. Right now, keep in mind, this judge actually is the one that suggested the motion to suppress to my attorney at the time. Because, see, my attorney at the time actually used to clerk for this judge. And I was actually pushing to appeal my bond hearing, the results of my bond hearing, of which we had made multiple attempts to secure my constitutionally guaranteed bond under the Eighth Amendment. So that's what, that was the fight I was wanting to fight. But my attorney was convinced by the judge, well, why don't you just file the motion to suppress? Because it's dispositive, meaning that if the motion to suppress is granted, this all goes away. You don't have to worry about bond, your client will be free to go. And so he convinced me, based on his conversations with the judge, that to move forward with the motion to suppress would be the better solution. Well then she denies it, doesn't even have the hearing. So that that's the first problem. Then of course we have the issues with the search warrant, right? Grove versus Ramirez is a case in which the Supreme Court ruled that no matter what documentation you have, the application for the search warrant, the application of the search warrant, it could all be 100% perfect. If the search warrant itself is flawed, is facially deficient, then the warrant is not legal. Okay. The reason is because the Fourth Amendment doesn't say that no affidavits of probable cause shall be issued. It doesn't say no applications for warrants shall be issued. It says no warrants shall be issued. And then later in the amendment, it says without, you know, the particularity, right? Without showing what you're to search and what you're to see, right? That is the requirement for a warrant. Well, their warrant was, obviously put together very lazily. Uh, Special Agent Hill did a crappy job. Clearly, she didn't proofread her own warrant. And so what she listed was that the place to be searched was our property. but And the things to be seized, the only thing she listed was Attachment B. But Attachment B is merely a description of our recreational vehicle. Which means all the warrant says is that she's allowed to search our house and the land around it, the cutlerage, right, in order to what? seize an RV. Well, guess what the RV parked outside, which means the moment that the FBI pulls up on our yard, opens their eyes and sees the RV outside, the search is over. Legally, according to their warrant. But see their affidavit had all this other nonsense. See, the problem is, if they would have simply said, in the first paragraph, see attachment A, and in the second paragraph, see attachment B, through E, guess what? The warrant would have been good, and they would have been totally legal, and then we wouldn't be sitting here having this discussion right now. But see, they didn't do that, because they're lazy. And maybe they're stupid. I don't know, but what I do know is that the law is very specific, and so that's one of the arguments that he will be laid out here. And then, of course, there's the other issues of jurisdiction, the jurisdiction that has been given to the government because of things like the Patriot Act, okay. right? Where a
3: yeah, the, I was just you mentioned the Patriot Act, and I was just going to ask you. Um, how the Patriot Act fits into all this. So yeah, thank you for bringing that up. And and maybe if you can fit in there how the Patriot Act would or wouldn't affect that search warrant when you're
1: done. Well, what the Patriot Act did was it, it allowed for the adjustment of the federal rules of criminal procedure that basically allowed for a judge in a separate district to issue a warrant pretty much anywhere in the United States Or probably, you know, as far as I know, maybe they can issue warrants in uh, China or, or Ukraine or Iran. Who knows? But what it does is it gives a judge in one district the ability to write a warrant to anywhere he wants, as long as it has to do with a domestic terrorism investigation. So, see, here we have a lot of Fourth Amendment problems, right? See, the Fourth Amendment protects you. The American citizen, you're the one that's protected by the Fourth Amendment. And so in order for them to get a warrant against you, your papers, your house, any of your stuff, right, Yeah, they have to show probable cause to a judge of a crime, and they have to say, as part of this probable cause to this crime that we believe that said citizen has committed, this is what we need to search. This is the place, or this is the person, and these are the things that we expect to see. Because why? Because, see, they've already investigated you. They already have probable cause, which means you most likely did it. They have uh, many different things cumulatively that these them to left. believe that you. That you committed the crime, and therefore we know with near certainty that when we search this place or person, that we're going to find these things that will then be evidence in our case against you. But see, this rule, and uh, I'll, I'll have to find it. I'll find it during the the, uh, the break. But this federal rule of criminal procedure that was put in place because of the Patriot Act says, oh no, no, as long as there's a domestic violence or domestic terrorism investigation, this judge can write a warrant against anybody. All they have to do is say that you're part of the investigation and voila, you can get a warrant a thousand miles away, nine months after a misdemeanor charge, and we can find all kinds of things. And so that is what the Patriot Act has done. And so we're hoping Sure that that's unconstitutional. So when we get back, the real you quick and see if I can find that rule.
2: Goodbye.
3: So we can see here the detriment of the Patriot Act. And just when he was talking, I was thinking of all these, all these, quote unquote, um, all this crime that we have, these mass shootings is really what I was thinking about. Mass shootings. And you cannot tell me that the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, these JTTF, whatever you want to call them, You cannot tell me that they don't know that these people exist and that they're having problems and that they have registered or unregistered firearms. In fact, um, the suspect that was in Maine was contacted by the police a few weeks before. But that's not what they're using it for. Okay, they're using it against American citizens. So with that being said, I just want to remind you of what all of the counts were for Jeremy. Count one, possession of an unregistered shotgun, having a barrel less than 18 inches. Two, an unregistered caller Having a barrel less than 16 inches. An incarcerated individual. Counts three and four, possession of unregistered explosive grenades. Count five, improper storage of explosive material, which are the grenades, and six through ten, willful retention of a national defense
2: document. accept this free call, press one. To refuse this free call, press Thank you for using Securus. You may start the conversation now.
1: All right. Can you hear me? Yes. All right. So the rule in question is Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 41B3 right? But before I read to you what 41B3 says, let me first reread to you the Fourth Amendment and what it actually says, you know, the supreme law of the land. Yes. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrant shall be issued but upon probable cause, supported by an oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seen. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the supreme law of the land. Now, let me read to you a federal rule that was put together by judges after legislators passed the Unconstitutional Patriot Act. See, Rule 41B3 states that a magistrate judge in an investigation of domestic terrorism or international terrorism with authority in any district in which activities related to the terrorism may have occurred has authority to issue a warrant for a person or property within or outside that district. Mm-hmm. Now. Does that to you sound almost diametrically opposed to the Fourth Amendment? Well, if you answered yes, well, then you would be on the correct side of the Supreme Law of the Land. And so this is one of the arguments that we're making. And see, domestic terrorism isn't even a statutory crime. See, it merely is defined in U.S. code. Eight, title 18, Section 2331. But it's not an actual statute of crime. Now, terrorism is the elements that make up domestic terrorism are individually crimes, right? But there is a domestic terrorism crime, and that was intentional because the the, what the Congress said, well, that's kind of a sticky subject because what's a domestic terrorist? Blah, blah, blah. And so they never actually codified it into the statute as a criminal act. So therefore, what they basically have to do is they have to describe things as domestic terrorism, but then actually charge you with individual specific crimes. Now, on my search warrant, they didn't even use elements of terrorism. They used uh, four crimes, right? Uh, Conspiracy. They used uh, transporting firearms in order to take uh, part in a riot. Uh, There was one other uh, uh, firearms charge and then the counts of misdemeanor. So to justify the warrant, they used a domestic terrorism investigation justification Mm -hmm. and then a bunch of crimes that I've never even been charged with, except for the misdemeanor trespassing. I've never been charged with conspiracy. I've never been charged with transporting firearms in order to to take part in a riot, even though they found firearms. Right? They, they found what they came to find. Wow! And yet they still didn't charge me with those things. And so the what the what Rule Forty One B Three, in essence. Allows the government to claim, oh, we're investigating domestic terrorism. And so, therefore, we need no probable cause. We need no evidence of any crime. We need nothing. All we need to say is that person may have possibly been part of this much larger investigation. And see, this is why the narrative of January 6th is so important. Because, see, if they can immediately call it domestic terrorism, well, guess what? They now get to violate the fourth amendment rights of millions of attendees at the January 6th rally by utilizing the Patriot Act that was passed after 9-11. Right? None of this stuff existed in the nearly 200 years of the country. But now, all of a sudden, we have to be able to to violate everybody's Fourth Amendment rights. Well, doesn't that sound like what a tyrant would want? That sounds exactly what a authoritarian police state would want. So we're fighting that as well. And then, of course, there's the uh, third argument that is going to be staleness, which is basically you know, the idea of, really, uh, you came nine months after the fact of this idea that he was involved in you know, domestic terrorism nine months ago, and you think you're going to find evidence a thousand miles away? Yeah, that, that's the third argument. Another indicator that the entire thing was a complete hoax. And if, when you read the brief, uh, my attorney, Mr. Ufferman, does an excellent job of really kind of framing uh, the entire trial. He, he points out the fact that I've been approached by federal agents and goes through the whole exposure aspect. And then, voila, nine months later, they come with two counts of misdemeanor traffic, but this is oddly, you know, uh, uh, an entirely different judge signed the warrant, uh, the search warrant versus the arrest warrant, even though it was only a few minutes apart from each other. I mean, the whole thing is fraudulent. And once you look at it, through the big picture lens, as it's laid out here in the appeal, you'll see that it just doesn't pass the smell test. So, that really is the Fourth Amendment aspect. And I'm, I'm super excited to be able to challenge this Rule 41B3 because it clearly violates the Fourth Amendment in every single way. And, uh, The idea that the FBI thought that they could get away with it and that we wouldn't be able to challenge it uh, just goes to show how cocky these tyrants have become. It's really
3: scary to think, you know, the reasons that they came to your door and what they were able to use to get into your house and stay there for five to six hours and then charge you with things. Um, When you say this could happen to you, it is never more clear than right now when you're laying this out for us to understand. Because this really could be any one of us. The Patriot Act has allowed this kind of investigation, quote unquote, to happen. And you're absolutely right. What happened after 9 11, that entire event was the precursor to our rights getting violated and what we're dealing with now, and is getting worse. And worse. So, um, there's one thing that I really want to point out that I think is, uh, it's really important when we talk about these grenades. And of course we know that you've said many times and you've said from the beginning that the grenades were planted in your RV. I just want to remind you of something, and this is in the appeal. Okay. And this sounds like this is coming, um, out of your lawyer's mouth here, Roger Feudman. members of our jury, the forensic evidence that you will see in this case, including DNA evidence, fiber, textile, hair evidence will show that counts three through nine was planted. Forensics do not lie, as the evidence will show. People do, and that's why we're here. During this trial, I'm not going to be able to show you how they were planted or who planted them, but what I will show you is when Mr. Brown did not play ball with the federal agencies, did not work for them as a confidential paid informant, did not give them information, instead went on various media outlets criticizing them, naming agents, chastising them, bad things happen. Take you back to December of 2020. Agent Lindsey and Agent yura approached Mr. Brown. Mr. Brown recorded that conversation. And they're asking Mr. Brown about a variety of subjects. Number one, would he be a paid informant for the government to infiltrate some groups they were looking at and some concerns they had about January? You know what happened January 6, 2021. He recorded that conversation. And instead of working for the government on January 6, he went on to different media outlets starting in March of 2021, playing that recording, naming the agents, exposing what they wanted him to do, naming it document and naming subjects, such as criticizing the government, exposing the government. He continued to do that beyond March and June on different media outlets, giving interviews about those interactions and being very critical of the agents. Lo and behold, come September 2021, a whole team of agents show up at Mr. Brown's residence. And you'll hear about oddities. The first oddity that gives credence to why this evidence was planted. The first thing the agents do when they get there and they go into the house is they turn off all 14 recording devices, the cameras. In this age of transparency, they turn off all the cameras. You'll hear that none of the agents had any functioning body camera, neither the local police and none of the federal agencies. The only person that was recording the initial interaction was his girlfriend that he was living with, Tylene who recorded the interaction, recorded the arrest by Agent Lindsay and Mr. Yura, and they actually said to turn off the recording, which she did, and then we don't see any more recording. Out of all these agents, nothing caught on camera by their choice. They go into an RV, they go into the house, in the house you'll hear about the gun. Doesn't dispute he owns it, when they go into the RV and they find these grenades, the government glossed over an opening. Is it ultimately Mr. Brown who absolutely denied knowing possession of these grenades. These grenades were sent for DNA evidence to find or seek out. If his DNA was on these grenades, the FBI's own laboratory, their own experts will tell you, guess what? There was two male specimen DNAs on those grenades. And you know, who was excluded as one of those males, Jeremy Brown male dna on the grenades not mr brown's they find an animal hair underneath one of these grenades a dog hair mr brown has two dogs they get a search warrant they come back they take a whole bunch of samples from the dogs about over 50 samples to see if the dog fiber that was also found under the grenades matches his dogs not his dogs the fiber that comes back you'll hear from the expert is a different animal his dogs are excluded The expert then finds a carpet textile fiber on one of the grenades or the tape around the grenade. So they get another search warrant. They go back to the residence. They cut out pieces of carpet from the house. They cut out fibers from the RV. They vacuum to get fibers. The expert then has to compare the fiber that was found underneath the grenade to his fibers. Guess whose fibers were excluded? Mr. Brown's. So we have a carpet textile fiber that the forensics will show on these grenades that don't match any of his carpets, bath mats, textiles. We have an animal dog fiber that is not his dogs and we have two male DNA that's not him. The forensics don't lie. You'll see through a photographic evidence of series of things that happened and they go through this briefcase of Mr. Brown's where yes, count 10 is a document that he fully wanted to be exposed that he fully admitted was in his possession. But the classified documents six, seven, eight and nine were apparently found on a CD, a 17-year-old CD that you're going to see in a few minutes. You're going to see the condition of this CD that apparently Mr. Brown would have had to have gone through the desert in Kuwait, in Afghanistan, brought into the country, held through the 17 years. You'll see without a scratch on that CD, without a discoloration on that CD, with a sticker that if he wanted to conceal because he knew they were coming to visit him that day, he could have just peeled off. You'll see that CD and you'll hear that it was in August of 2022 with the defense's request. There was a trace done on that CD to see when it was uploaded. August of 2022, because he said, hey, I didn't put that CD in my RV. That's not my CD. You'll hear when he testifies logically why it also makes sense that he kept the physical document that he authored and he did not have this CD. He clearly didn't have it. He couldn't have uploaded it. He didn't upload it. And he didn't keep it for 17 years. And when you see the CD in a few minutes, you'll see the condition is totally inconsistent with that. He did not have those, the CD nor the grenades in his knowing possession. And you'll hear about good reasons how it got there and why it got there. When you, for, when you hear the forensic evidence and you see the oddities and the photographs, at the end of the case, members of the jury, I respectfully will submit to you that you'll say, you had you some have serious, serious concerns about counts three through nine, and you will very, very quickly find him not guilty of counts three through nine. That is a great uh, summary of what you had to deal with in this case. So uh, I guess I'll, I'll let you. Do you want to call back to break that down? No, more? Unless,
2: oh, oh, let's
1: keep in mind the jury did not find me guilty for STD, the but they did find me guilty for the grenade. Why? Well, that's actually the third point of this appeal. And we'll get to that. But I want to talk about my favorite part of the appeal coming up next. And that is the Second Amendment, baby.
3: (laughs)
2: Awesome. The caller has hung up.
3: So when you hear that, that's just a really great, concise summary of the evidence there. And it makes you wonder how the jury couldn't find him not guilty on the grenades, especially when none of the DNA matched his, his dogs, any carpet fibers. Uh, It's, it's really uh, amazing. I'll say, but I mean, that's, that's, uh, I guess you could say that's why we have juries, uh, a jury of your peers, you know, And you're rolling the dice when you go to a jury trial. But as you see what's going on in D.C., the jury pool has been poisoned. So what do you do then? Uh, Have we had any uh, motions to change the venue? I'm sure we have. And they've been denied. Incarcerated
2: individual at Citrus County, Florida. This call is not private. It will be recorded and may be monitored. If you believe this should be a private call, please hang up and follow facility instructions to register this number as a private number to accept this free call. Press 1 to refuse this free call. Thank you for using Securus. You may start the conversation now.
1: All right. Can you hear me? Yes. All right. The second part of the appeal is the second amendment challenge. Now, I happen to know a little bit about guns, all right? Uh, I was an M60 machine gunner, and then, of course, a 240 golf gunner in Ranger Battalion. I was a Special Forces Weapons Sergeant for a few years before I reclassified to communication Communications Service. But of the three Special Forces Operational Detachment Alphas I was on, two of those teams were shooting teams, all right? I was a sniper, all this sort of stuff. Then, when my third team was the Halo team, of which I was the team sergeant of, and of course, uh, we were engaged in the global war on terrorism, and we deployed to Iraq, and our mission was to train the Talibar SWAT. Therefore, that military freefall team, in essence, was also a shooting team because our mission set required CQB training and some mm-hmm. things. So I know a little something about guns. And the idea that the government can tell me that the weapon that I carry for 20 years, which is in the military, it's known as the M4. In the civilian world, it's known as an AR-15. For the government to tell me that I can carry this weapon in foreign lands to defend foreign borders and foreign people's liberty, that's fine. But I can't have that own that weapon in my own home to defend my own home and my own land. Well now that's just absurd. And it totally violates the necessary for the security of a free state clause of the Second Amendment. And so my entire life, ever since I read the Second Amendment and heard that there were gun laws, I've always wanted to be that guy. You know, the guy that is US versus that guy, right? Now, in 2008, there was a that guy. His name was Dick Heller, and he was a security guard in Washington, D.C. Long story short, he too. To carry a gun at work to protect those who march around and say, rules for thee, but not for me. That's right. He was a security guard in Washington, Mm D.C., an armed security guard. And yet his own personal firearm, the District of Columbia, said, oh, no, you can't protect yourself. You can only protect the kings and queens. And so he fought. This law. And it took him, I believe, 30 years. You can check me on that. Now, I've actually had a phone conversation with Mr. Heller, a great phone conversation before I was arrested, when I was in Austin, Texas, uh, doing in-studio interviews with InfoWars. And I was given his point of contact. And we had a very good phone conversation. And I told him, I would love to someday be the subject of a landmark Second Amendment ruling. Well, guess what? This Second Amendment challenge yeah. basically says that the 1934 National Firearms Act is a violation of the Second Amendment. It is the NSA that makes this ridiculous claim that your barrel on a rifle is too short, and therefore, in order for you to not be a danger to yourself and others, to not be a radical terrorist, to not do whatever it is the government's afraid you might do with a short barrel. Well, all of those problems will just go away if you just pay us $200, wait one year, and give us the ability to say yay or nay. See, that's what the National Firearms Act does. It doesn't ban short barrel rifles, it doesn't ban short barrel shotguns. It says we. The kings and queens say that you can't own that unless you pay us and we agree that you're good enough of a citizen to own it. That's what the National Firearms Act of 1934 says. That is where the short barrel rifle designation comes from. And guess what? Just recently, in like the last six months, I think it was, the ATF, by their own accord, not through legislative act, but by the changing of language through a regulation, has taken 22 million American legal American gun owners who own what are called AR pistols. You know what an AR pistol is. You know the difference between an AR pistol gen and a short barrel rifle is. You got know a difference?
3: No, other than just no. Just tell me.
1: One's called a short barrel rifle, mm-hmm. and the other's called a pistol. Okay. That's it. Now, there's some slight deviations in the butt stock, but ballistically, they're the exact same weapon, except, I will say this, the AR pistol, which is legal, or was legal, uh, actually had a 7-inch barrel, and my short barrel rifle had a 10-inch barrel. Yeah, that's the big difference. A word, a stinking word. And so the ATF says, well, we don't like how these uppity gun owners are following laws and all this other stuff. So we're going to change the AR pistol designation. And we're just going to make all of those legally purchased firearms. And I believe it's 22 million of them. The last numbers that I heard. 22 million legally purchased pistols. And we're going to use our little pen, because the pen is minor than the sword. And we're going to, with the stroke of this regulatory pen, change them from pistols to short barrel rifles. You got 120 days to pay your $200 tax, but guess what? The wait list is is 12 months. So you're all about to be felons. And they did that. So if you own an AR pistol, if that law hasn't gone gone into effect, or that regulation hasn't gone into effect, it was supposed to have gone into effect. I think a couple months ago. You're now a felon. You just haven't been busted yet. But wow. don't worry. When you filled out your registration form for the pistol, they know you have it. Right. See, this is what the founders would have called an infringement. Now. If you want to get all civil rights on me, and if you want to make this a woke issue, okay, all right. Ever hear of a poll tax? A poll tax was what racist Democrats in the South, and yes, they were Democrats, you know, the Jim Crow laws, yeah, you know, those, those were all passed by Democrats, don't you know? But let's not get let's not get sidetracked. The the racist Southern Democrats used to charge black people a poll tax. To vote. You know why they did this? Well, because these racist Democrats made the economic uh, livelihoods of Blacks in the South uh, pretty low, and so they couldn't afford to pay to vote. But you know, the Supreme Court ruled that poll taxes are unconstitutional. Why? Well, because you're paying tax. So, right? You see, voting. Is not actually an enumerated right in the Constitution. Now, the protection of voting, if your state Constitution establishes it as a right, well, it is protected from certain forms of discrimination. See, people don't understand that you have no right to vote in the United States Constitution. Your right to vote, if existing at the state level, is protected by the United States Constitution against gender discrimination or racial or economical, whether you're a woman or not, right? That's what the constitution. But yet the Supreme Court ruled that even the perceived right to vote cannot be taxed. But yet the government taxes my enumerated right, the Second Amendment, that clearly says that, that right shall not be infringed. That's what the NSA does. And so this appeal makes the argument based on New York rifle versus brewing to the Supreme Court ruled that if the government is going to pass a a restrictive measure on the Second Amendment, it must be founded in a historic a historic norm that existed at the time of the ratification of the Second Amendment. In other words, you just can't make up new gun rules. And you can't also make the claim that, oh, uh, well, there's modern social concerns. Because, see, the founders uh, had modern you know, social concerns, too. That is the beauty. Because guess what? This argument shows that short-barreled rifles and shotguns were totally in use during the Revolutionary War period. And then, of course, we reference. The Federalist Papers, where Alexander Hamilton, we talked about this last week, clearly explains why the citizens must be able to keep and bear arms so that they have the ability to be called up as the well regulated militia. Why? Because it's necessary for the security of a free state. Against who? Against the federal government. Those are the words of Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton said, The state needs to be able to be the voice and, if necessary, the arm against the federal government. That's not a conspiracy theory. And so this Second Amendment case will basically nullify the ATF's ability to claim, you can't own that, it's too short. And it even makes fun of the fact that, well, if short barrels is the problem, then how are pistols legal? Because they're way shorter and way easier to conceal. They they have no argument. These are just incremental infringement, right, as exhibited by the case. And I just explained to you, with the stroke of a pen, making 22 million firearms illegal. Why? Because, see, oh, no, short barrel rifles are the only ones that we want to attack. Those AR pistols are perfectly fine. And then incrementally, because we've already established that short barrel rifles are illegal, you all we have to do is call these things short barrel rifles. It's just like, oh, international terrorism is why we need a $3 billion joint terrorism task force budget. Oh, we'll just simply call them domestic terrorists. Now we get to use all these illegal laws against our own people. Isn't it awesome? It's like the scene from Braveheart where he says, Send in the archers, and he says, sir, but we'll hit our own men. And he goes, well, we'll hit theirs as well. They don't care. They just want to take our guns away, as Jesse Kelly likes to say, so they can hurt us. That's why. That's nothing to do with safety. That's nothing to do with crime. In fact, we make that point in this appeal. You no know, violent crime isn't even utilize a firearm and those that do utilize firearms use handguns but that's not a claim saying that we should take the handguns away it's just a claim and how ridiculous the federal government attacks on your ability to stand toe to toe with them when he stands in front of you and says if you want to take me on you better have an s-15 pal really I don't need an S 15. because I have an AR 15. And if AR 15 weren't enough, well, then why would we be donating them to Ukraine? See, the reality okay. is the founders didn't have a huge armada of ships, and yet they won. So, no, Joe, we don't need S 15, but we do need to have eh, equal or greater. Firepower. If you ever decide to take your tyranny to the next level, and that is the purpose, and the stated purpose by our founding fathers for the Second Amendment, and this case, this appeal will hopefully be added to the DC versus the McDonald versus Chicago, Chicago, and the New York Rifle Club versus Bruin stack of weapons that we as citizens can use against this tyrannical government to say, no, you're not going to take away my ability to defend myself from you so that you can hurt me. So I'm super excited about it. And actually, Jen, if you want to go one more call, I'll tell you a little story.
3: Yes, please call back.
2: All right. The caller has hung up.
3: And then we also have one question from the audience that I want to get to him as well. And so let me show you so you can read this appeal yourself because obviously it's a lot more than what we're talking about here. If you go to Jeremy De- uh Jeremy Brown I'm just going to open up my screen here so you can see it'll be the first button actually on that page. Right here. So Jeremy Brown's appeals brief filed October, 2023. You click right there and you can see all you want to see about this appeals brief. And um, something I do have to say is it's very easy to read, easy to understand. I really like the writing style of his appellate attorney. um,
2: Unknown caller.
3: Mr. Uh So please feel free, go to his website, and uh,
2: read his An incarcerated individual at Citrus County, Florida. This call is not private. It will be recorded and may be monitored. If you believe this should be a private call, please hang up and follow facility instructions to register this number as a private number. To accept this free call, press 1. To refuse this free call, thank you for using Securus. You may start the conversation now.
1: All
3: right. Can you hear me? Yes. And actually we have uh, a question from the audience, if you don't mind, just before your story.
1: I don't, I never mind. I love questions.
3: Um, They're asking if, if you were ever told that you were being investigated under the Patriot Act, or if you ever asked them, if you were being investigated under that.
1: Did I ever ask them?
3: Yes. Or did they tell you like, was that conversation had um, or did it ever come up that the Patriot no. Act was used? Okay.
1: No, the only reason we even know that they utilize the Patriot Act is their jurisdiction paragraph in the search warrant, which explained how a D.C. magistrate judge was able to issue a warrant in the Middle District of Florida. You see, the warrant is supposed to be issued in the district for which you know, the search is happening. But see, it's the Patriot Act that allows that uh, that violation to happen, and that's how the d c magistrate judge was able to issue a warrant for a property one thousand miles away nine months after the fact, not because of domestic terrorism not anything goes okay,
3: all right, thank you for answering that.
1: <laughs> all right, so I told you that I was super excited to bring it. See, I built that ten inch rifle uh not too long ago. I built a duplicate one for someone else very near and dear to my heart, right? But do you want to know how ridiculous it is? Do you know that if you take the two take down pins on an AR-15, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's fine. Uh, find, find a green beret and they'll show it to you. But the AR-15 has two pins that disconnect the upper receiver from the lower receiver, basically the trigger from the barrel, yeah. okay? If you remove that 10-inch barrel by sliding those two pins out and disconnecting them, voila, no crime. So technically, if I were to have had my gun simply separated by a half inch, disconnected those two pins and moved the upper a half inch away from the lower to where I could have easily slapped it on and put the pins in in just a couple of seconds, I would have been totally legal. They would have had no claim to arrest me or charge me with any crime. In fact, the other version of our 10-inch upper AR-15 was in that condition, was separated. And guess what? Not They didn't even try to claim that. Oh, we bet when you go to the range, you put these two things together. You must no. That's how absurd and ridiculous it is. Technically. It's a weapons part. But what makes it a crime is when you connect them. But Like I said, our AR pistol, which has a seven-inch barrel, perfectly legal. Why? Because it was called a pistol. So knowing this, I was advised by friends from time to time, hey, you should make sure you disconnect those. And my response was, I'm not worried about it. I would love to be arrested for having a short barrel rifle, because that's how I get to challenge it to so is pretty cool. And so I can't tell you how excited I am when I read the Second Amendment Challenge. So uh, I hope you, you read it. Jen, do you know we were able to get the link onto the website so that everyone can read this? Appeals brief for themselves?
3: Yes, absolutely. It's actually the first button on there, and I just screen shared and showed everyone uh, how to get there and where the button is. All
1: right, awesome. So please go to jeremybrowndefense.com, read it for yourself, and know that what you're reading is what you're paying for when you donate to our legal defense fund. And there's more to come. This is, like I said, our first victory. And maybe this will be a good. story. The only way you get to the Supreme Court is to lose. You do realize that, right? Like, you just don't get to cut in the front of the line. You have to keep losing to get to the Supreme Court. So if we win in the 11th Circuit, eh, I'll be happy with that. I would much rather lose than then go to the Supreme Court and win. That way, the change affects the entire country. But, hey, we've been so... Uh, we've been so void of victory during this entire process that I I will take any victory I can get at this point. But the last argument was actually kind of a last minute addition. And it honestly wasn't even something that I had thought about. Uh, Actually, Chris Hedges, uh, part of uh, my legal advisory team, my JAG Corps, if you will, uh, he kind of came up with this novel argument. And that is, you realize that the prosecutor violated the fifth amendment in closing statements and so i was like no so he wrote an entire article explaining how this prosecutorial misconduct was actually a fifth amendment violation and apparently based on case law which is cited here in the appeal it's a pretty serious one and so in summary we talked about the recording where the DOJ surprised. We play this partial recording and we make it sound like Mr. Brown had those grenades all along. That dastardly bastard. But then, of course, we explained that there was actually another recording, and that when instead of the word "grenade" was used, of which I own legal airsoft grenades and smoke grenades. But when the live grenade, and that they needed to be detonated, was told to me in the second phone call, well, then that's when I reacted the way I would react to something that I didn't have. And that is, that was bullshit. But see, this isn't even that. Apparently, this is way worse. You see, when they play that call to the jury, and the jury hears the call, and hears the moment of silence after... The word grenade is thrown out by my girlfriend. Well, when the prosecutor then refers to that moment in the jail call and says to them, says to the jury, that my silence is a confession, well, that's a violation of the Fifth Amendment because, see, I had the right to remain silent. So therefore, the exercising of the right can't be a confession. To see, that's not even like, and I'm not saying that uh, that necessarily is what happened. but their action of making the statement that my silence is a confession, that is a violation of the law. They told the jury my silence was a confession, and it had such a impact on the jury, that there was only one piece of evidence that was ever asked to be re-presented. And it was that call. That call. And that's why that jury found me not guilty on the CD, and yet could not bring themselves to say not guilty on the grenade. Because, man, yeah, why why did Mr. Brown not act shocked? To the word grenade, because see, they're all like bartenders and nurses and things like that. Like they don't, they can't conceptualize why the word grenade would not just make them all like oh, a grenade. I don't have grenades. No, they probably don't own other forms of grenade, and they've probably never been told that they have a grenade in their entire life. See, I'm not them, and so they seem to take. Extra umbrage with that whole situation, and clearly it was enough to make them say, eh, We but we totally believe the FBI planted the CD ROM classified uh, material, but, but I don't know about them grenades. It, you know, that's that's just a bridge too far. We can't get there because, uh, yeah, they found me guilty on the grenades despite all the DNA evidence, despite all the trace evidence uh, from the uh, joint munitions investigator, they found me guilty. Well, the reason they found me guilty is because of fancy wordsmithing by the prosecutor. Fancy wordsmithing that they knew was a violation of the law because there's multiple citations in this appeal that they should have known that you can't do that, guys. You can't say, well, Mr. Brown was silent. And therefore, he must be guilty. That's a violation of the Fifth Amendment. I mean, the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment. And those arguments are laid out. So, I think uh, you might have been able to pick up on the fact that I'm super excited about this appeal brief. And if I didn't come across as excited enough, you should know that I definitely am. But I wanted to go through this, at least to kind of cursory overview. And I know this episode is a little bit longer than normal, but look, this is what you get out of Green berets For the mere price of this appeal, for the mere price of most of the failed attorneys and a couple of really good attorneys, I'm going to fix, hopefully, through this appeal. And it's. This appeal doesn't work, and we'll hopefully go to the Supreme Court and fix it once and for all across the country. This is the fight that I'm waging. I'm not in here to get out of jail free. I'm not in here to plead guilty for less time or lower my charges for my own personal benefit. I'm here to make a change in these criminal acts being conducted by these jackbooted thugs that run around. Trying to get every convince everybody that they're heroes. These guys aren't heroes. They're criminals. They're violating American rights every day. And they mess with with a glad smirk on their face. In fact, when questioned about their crimes against the American people, they say, Well, you know, Senator, hey, can we hurry this up? I've got to get to my vacation on my Taxpayer provided private jet. This is what I'm fighting for. This is what I'm fighting against. And guess what? The beauty of this appeal is it identifies that their mistakes don't fall under qualified immunity, which means when I'm done here, I'll be coming after them individually. And if I can find some way in the world to convene a citizen's grand jury. I will have them all brought up on violations of Title 18, Section 242, the deprivation of my rights under color of law. And guess what? We're up to 760 days would be their penalty. So Special Agent Katie Hill and Department of Homeland uh, Investigator Brett Lindsay and, and Mr. Err, uh, what's the other knucklehead's name? I don't know. I got them all written down somewhere. Yeah. Lindsay I'm not just gonna walk from here. Walk. I'm not gonna walk away from this jail cell and be like, "Hey, <laughs> no hard feelings, guys." I know you were just doing your job. No, because you know who else was just doing their job? Nazi prison guards. So yeah, I'm a little bit excited, and just for a little amount of money relative that we've raised through your efforts. Your $5 donations and your $10 donations and and your $100 and $500 donations. We've had people donate $10,000 before. But those dollars, pound for pound, up against what the United States government has brought to bear against me, when you read this appeal, you're going to see I think we're winning. I, I think Green Berets might actually be. Good returns on investment. And see, that's what I wanted to go over this with you tonight for. Because see, <clears throat> I don't like the fight, but I kind of like the fight. And this is a fight that, while it sucks having to fight it from in here, and I'm not real fond of these orange and brown sheets, Um, the food's not real good. You
2: have one minute left.
1: All of that is nothing compared to the idea that some school board mom, some dad trying to do the best by his kids could get their doors knocked down by these criminal thugs under the idea that, oh, we were just investigating domestic terrorism because uh, you have a Don't turn on me flag on your front porch. Yeah, that's not okay with me. And so I'll continue to fight and I'll continue to make these constitutional arguments as long as you're willing to support me and probably even after you stop supporting me because I'm not going to let these assholes win. And so thanks for listening.
3: Hey, thanks for everything that you do, Jeremy. You're the one sacrificing and putting yourself out there. So thank you.
1: Well, you know, people say thank you for your service. And I
2: say. Securus. Goodbye.
3: Yeah, it's truly incredible. So you, he's explained uh, how seriously he took his oath, what his mission is. One, expose the FBI, the Department of Justice and all other government agencies that were involved in the staging and execution of the military coup against the American people. Two, to expose the flaws in the judicial system itself. And three, to gain freedom. So, again, this can all happen to us. It's already happened to many of us. And once you understand the unconventional warfare aspect of it, You start seeing all these psyops. You start realizing the mind games that have been played on the American people and what we've allowed to happen in this country, violating our constitutional rights. But Jeremy Brown is not going to lay down and take it. He's going to keep fighting. In fact, he already started fighting when he recorded them, uh, recruiting him to be a confidential human source. So that's where it's at folks. Please go to jeremybrowndefense.com click on that first blue link. That's where you're going to find the appeal brief there. It's good reading. Uh, please comment down below what your thoughts are after you've read it. Very interested. Uh, or you can tweet about it as well. And, uh, Just give me a little shout-out so I can actually read it. So thank you very much, everybody, for being here tonight. Yeah. Um, KMNT is saying that the third agent that was there, that was very troublesome, as you'll see in Tylene's recording. His name was Frank. He was the supervisor there. Where You should really hear his court testimony and how seriously he took his job every day, except that day, apparently where he had more important places to be, but definitely had the time to berate Tylene for asking uh, when she asked him where the search warrant was. So well, I'm sure we'll watch that video again soon. It's very telling. Thank you everybody for being here. Thank you for supporting Jeremy, Jeremy If you'd like to contribute to his legal battle and fight for the American people, you'll find it right uh, it's actually pretty close by. Let me show you. So we've got the appeals brief right here. Schedule interview, Jeremy. And right here, give, and go is a way that you can contribute to his legal fund. Thank you very much for, for being here, for listening, for supporting. Please give us a like, a rumble if you can. Subscribe if you haven't already. And we will see you tomorrow night in the Fusion Cell whatever you do don't do nothing have a good night folks
0: world
2: domination same old dream the universe grows smaller every day this nation under god shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people By the people and for the people shall not perish from the earth. It was a great word.